0: The scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. It can be found on page 960 in the Black Bible. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The word of the Lord. Thanks, God. Well, good morning. Like Clay said, my name's John Trapp and it is so good to be with y'all. I love this place, and I love you people. And I'm just—I could. Talk this whole time about how much you have meant to me um, and how grateful Chrissy and I are for how this church has loved us and encouraged us and prayed for us and supported us. I just, it's really special to be with you and thanks for having us this morning. Um, I want to start out by telling you a little story of when I was a kid growing up in Tuscumbia, Alabama, the same place where uh, our guitarist Joe Deegan is from. And I was the first kid in my friend group to be able to drive. And so I got my 95U Chevy Tahoe, so excited about it. And my friends liked to mess with my car because they knew I knew nothing about cars. And so they would, they would do all kinds of things to it. They'd pop the hood and I'd have no idea, you know, oh, my hood's popped, what just happened? And, you know, or, you know, they'd saran wrap my car, they would roll the windows. There's not a lot to do in Tuscumbia. They just mess with my cars a lot. Uh, with my car. And so um, I'm pulling out of school one day and kind of slowly turning out of the parking lot and my car is just lurching. I don't really understand why it's not it's just not driving right. And I'm looking at all the gauges in the car and I go to the gas station, check the tire pressure thing and I go home and tell my mom, she's like, well, just take it to the dealership because my mom knows nothing about cars either. And so I take, take the car to the dealership, drop it off and come back home. And we're home for about 10 minutes, and they call and say, hey, your, your car's ready to come be picked up. I was like, man, you guys are good, great, all right, thanks. And so we go back and uh, pick up the car, and the guy's like, yeah, it'll be 40 bucks. Okay, great, sure, what, what was wrong with the car? He's like, uh, your car was in four-wheel drive. like, oh, sure, I, I knew that, I was just testing you, man, just making sure, you know, you're on your game. Um, here's the thing, I was looking at all the wrong gauges for what was wrong with my car, and the most obvious thing, which was apparent to me, which was not apparent to me, um, I was overlooking. And when you think about the question, what does a healthy church look like? Or, or even, what does a healthy relationship with God look like? What gauges do you consider? What kind of things do you think about? How do you answer that? And I would suggest to you, if you're anything like me, oftentimes you look at the wrong gauges. And so I want us to consider this passage as Paul tells us where we should be looking. Let me pray for us first. Father, I thank you uh, for this time and I pray now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you. And I pray that you would help us to see how beautiful and good you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so three things for you this morning that I want to look at. First, the warning lights. Second, the gauge. And then third, so what? All right, The warning lights, the gauge, and then so what? All right. To get this passage and really appreciate what's, what Paul's saying, we have to understand a little bit about this church and this city called Corinth. Kids, you might remember from your geography class what an isthmus is. An isthmus? I got a head nod over there. Okay, good for you. Way to go. Um, an isthmus is like a little land bridge that connects two other larger land bridges. Now, Corinth was on a land bridge that connected um, two major parts of the Greek and Roman world. And because of this, uh, it was just this four-mile-wide stretch that connected southern Greece with the north. Um, Corinth was an incredibly uh, wealthy and populated and diverse place. and in, in, in fact, it was at that time the most populated, diverse, wealthy, and commercially-minded city in its region. Maybe that sounds like another city you've heard of before. Commercially minded, diverse, populated, wealthy. But because of this, also Corinth was a wild city. It was a very religious city, but pagan. It was a city that threw wild parties. It was a city with a large sex trade, with many sex addicts in it. I don't know if that sounds like a familiar city to you either, but I think Corinth maybe has something to speak to us this morning. And the wild thing that happens in Corinth, though, is that a church starts there. And there's all these incredible stories of transformation that happen in this church, people who we're doing all kinds of horrible pagan things who are transformed by the good news of the gospel. And there's these amazing conversion stories. There's incredible speakers who are kind of coming up through the ranks of the church. There is this incredible impact that they're able to have because of their wealth. There's great miracles happening in the church of Corinth. And yet they have a problem because they're considering the wrong gauges. And Paul is going to speak to that. And the, there's all kinds of problems like there, is, there are lots of divisions in the church. So I, I like that speaker. I like that speaker. He's better. There's, there's so much divisiveness that in fact during the Lord's Supper the rich people are going off and getting drunk on communion wine before the poor can come in and have some of the Lord's Supper. There's all kinds of sexual immorality happening within the church. Not outside the church but in the church. And all of, the, all of these things are like a lurching vehicle to Corinth saying, you are looking at the wrong gauge. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And so he starts talking about warning lights that we see here in 1 Corinthians 13. The different kinds of warning lights that go off when we are looking at the wrong gauge. And we can see this happen personally and also within the church. And I want to talk about both of those. So personally... He goes through this list and he says, We can become boastful. When we're looking at the wrong gauges, we become boastful. We become the kinds of people who are seeking our own glory. We become envious. We want what others have rather than being happy for them. We become arrogant. We elevate our status above that of others. We become rude. I don't know if you've noticed that trend on Twitter lately. Some rudeness out there. And there's also rudeness in here and in our own lives. When we disregard others' experiences, maybe our children's, our spouse, our friends, our coworkers, we disregard their experiences and prioritize ourselves. There's irritability. We're easily angered. Maybe your kids were slow getting ready to go to church. I don't know easily angered and irritated with others for the sake of our own selves and our own comfort. Or we become resentful and angry about not getting what we wanted. These are the warning lights. But I want you to see what Paul puts right in the middle of this list. And I think it sums up all the other ones. Insisting on your own way. Self-centeredness. Concern with the self. And What's kind of radical about this, about this being considered a warning light, is it's the opposite of what our culture tells us makes us happy. And this spring, in the New York Times, columnist David Brooks read an article, Five Lies Our Culture Tells. Here's one of them. He says, one of the lies is this, I can make myself happy. This is the lie of self-sufficiency. This is the lie that happiness is an individual accomplishment. It can, if I can have just one more victory, lose 15 pounds, or get better at meditation, then I will be happy. The people look back on their lives from their deathbeds, and they tell us that happiness is actually found amid thick and loving relationships. It is found by defeating self-sufficiency for a state of mutual dependence. It is found... In the giving and receiving of care. Now, many of us know this. We believe this. That real happiness is found in giving of ourselves, and yet so we do it so little. We're so quick to consider the needs of ourselves. Who have you thought about the most today? I know who I've thought about the most today. It's not you. Sorry. It's me. I think about myself the most. What does this look like when we don't only do this as individuals, but as a church? We begin boasting about our church's successes. We don't talk about the things that aren't going well in the church. We boast about our successes and our programs that look so great and are wonderful. We become envious when there are other churches who we perceive as doing better than we are. as Being successful. Think of the other warning lights that Paul gives us arrogance. We begin to look down on those other people, and they don't really get theology. I mean, have they even read John Calvin? Right? We become rude, having no patience or understanding with people who have different views than our own. We become resentful and bitter that we didn't get asked for that leadership opportunity in the church. We become irritable quick to move to our own self-protection as a church if threatened by outside forces rather than considering those around us. Dr. Edmund Clowney, who ended his tenure in the pastorate here at Christ the King, was very well known for saying this, and it's just, it's so good. The church is the only institution in the world that exists for those outside of it. We exist for those outside of these walls. It's not about our own self-protection. It's not about us. And The cultural lie that we so often believe is that happiness is found in us being great, in you as an individual being great. And we do this, we, we, we don't only believe this ourselves, but we put our press, the pressure on our children. We live as if this is what is going to help them and make them happy. Their success their credentials. Listen to this Washington Post article that was written earlier this year that speaks to this. The title is amazing. When parenting becomes a religion, college admissions, offers become, college admissions officers become high priests. It's the title of the article. That's a title. Listen to what it says. Take a drive around any upper middle class enclave in America and within minutes you will spot a station wagon or three adorned with collegiate logos. These cars belong by and large not to college students but to their parents. It is the grown up version of the age old my child is an honor student at blank elementary school bumper sticker. <laughs> Windshield school stickers have taken on a sinister aspect in the wake of the college admission scandal that has dominated our headlines. Turns out that, for some, those stickers and the status they represent are worth risking prison for. Indeed, to more and more of us, the, collegiate, the college admissions process represents the ultimate measure of personal and social value. Or what some would call upper-middle class righteousness. An acceptance letter to the right college constitutes a judgment of near-religious significance. Perhaps that sounds like hyperbole. But a friend once told me if you're having trouble understanding fanatical behavior, trace the righteousness in play. And things will become clear. This helps explain why someone might commit felonies to circumvent a university's front door. Actions like these reflect a society in which success, not goodness, has become our highest virtue. Parenting as redemption casts the child as the role of the Savior. Read that last part. Parenting as redemption casts the child in the role of Savior. What are we telling our kids? How are they going to be okay in this world? What are we modeling for them? What do we get stressed out about when they don't have enough time for it? Do we get stressed out because they don't have enough time to go to that tutoring session or that thing that's going to pad their resume or do we get stressed out when they don't have enough time to come to church? What are we modeling for them that's really important? What's the gauge that matters? Not just for parents, for all of us. We all do this. We act as if it's up to us to make ourselves okay. Do you see how anxiety-inducing this is, by the way? It's up to you to be okay? If that's the truth, then we can never be secure. So what do we need? We need to look at the right gauge. The gauge that actually matters. The only one thing, love. Jesus says that all of the law can be summed up in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. If we don't have it, Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, if we don't have love, we're nothing. We can have great speeches, great miracles. Be willing to die for your faith. Paul says. If you don't have love, you're nothing. So think about these warning lights if love is applied to them. How that begins to unwind these warning lights of arrogance and boastfulness and enviousness. How freed would our children be if they did not feel the pressure of needing to live a life worth boasting about? How would our friendships change if we would stop envying our friends but instead rejoiced For their success and their fortune. How would our conflict resolution change if we didn't arrogantly, and I'm talking about myself here. Welcome to the club. How would our conflict resolution change if we did not arrogantly assume our innocence and the others' guilt? But instead, we entered conflict with the goal of listening and humility because of love. How many of our marriages would be transformed if we did not insist on our own way, but instead considered the others flourishing and care first? How life-giving of a church could we be if rather than rude coldness when someone comes into the doors of a church, they experience warm hospitality? Hospitality? Biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality is hospitality for the sake of the guest. Southern hospitality is hospitality for the sake of the host. What if they experienced biblical hospitality? They came to a church. What kind of subordinates would we be in the workplace? If when we are when we have slights or disappointments, we embrace them with grace and patience rather than resentment. What kind of generosity could you show to this city if you were not concerned with yourself first, but loving others? The Bible tells us where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. I dare you to go home and look at your budget and ask who's getting the love. Where is your heart Where your heart is, there your treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're called to love. Where's the love? Now, listen, how do we do this? So what? If the gauge that matters is love, then, like, how do we get it? And this is hard for us. And I've got to confess to you, this is hard for me. I have experienced how hard this is in lots of different ways but one of them was this spring uh, as I was once again sitting in my office and it was Monday at 3.30 and I was thinking about what was next on my calendar because what's next on my calendar at RUF on Mondays at 3.30 is to go to East Austin to Elm Ridge Apartments where we do after school tutoring with our college students and with kids who are coming home uh, in an impoverished part of the city. It's my least favorite time. It was my least favorite time in the spring. It's incredibly inefficient. Every Monday I'd be sitting there looking at my, all the email that I needed, to get, I needed to get to, all the things that I had to check off my list. And there was that time, Monday at 3.30. And one of the reasons I, don't, I didn't like going is the kids don't like me. They don't. I was the children's minister here. The kids there, they weren't into it. They weren't buying the hype. Sorry. Three times last spring, I was spat on by a child who I was trying to get to do their homework. There was one kid, every time I would talk to him, he'd just go, shut up. And I'd talk to him again, and he'd go, shut up. That's it. So Monday at 3.30 rolls around, and I don't want to go. And then I stopped and I thought, how often am I like those kids with Jesus? How often have I spat on him as he was spat on when he went to the cross? How often has his words spoken convicting things to me? And I look at them and I say, shut up. But you see, Jesus, like what Paul says, love is patient and kind. Jesus is patient and kind with me in my stubbornness and my self-centeredness. It's the gospel. It's the good news to sinners. You can replace Jesus' name with this passage, with love. Switch love and Jesus around, and it sounds like this, and every word of it's true. Jesus is patient with you. Jesus is kind to you. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable with you. Do you know he's not irritated? Man. <sighs> Jesus is not resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus did not insist on his own way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he cried out to his father on the night that he was Going to the trial before he would be crucified, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus did not insist on his own way for your sake and for mine. Jesus bore all things. He bore our sin. He endured all things for you on the cross because he loves you. He is love. He loves you. Your hope is not in you taking care of yourself. Your hope is in him. So come to him. The only way that we can go out and start loving is what John says in 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us when we weren't lovable. He loved us. You will will change, God will use you to change people's lives around you through that. And don't look at the wrong, at the other gauges. Of how, how can we start doing all this incredible stuff without first thinking of the gauge that is important, that most matters, love. And you do that because he's loved you. And I wanna encourage y'all, I've seen you do this. You did, you did this for me. You loved my family and me. I, one example, and I could give you many, so some of y'all know this story. Our our child our first child, Owen, was um, was born not in Texas. We were in Tuscumbia, Alabama, celebrating Thanksgiving with my family. Chrissy was thirty one weeks along with Owen and she went into labor, which, spoiler alert, don't want to go into labor with pre-meat in Tuscumbia. So we drove, she drove in an ambulance, uh, and I followed to Nashville where we had Owen. And we were stuck there for a little over a month. And while we were there, we were loved. Multiple people from this church came and saw us in Nashville. Clay Holland came and saw us and loved us. When Chrissy had to come back to Houston, because for some reason you still had exams at HBU, man, what was that? Anyway. (laughs) She had exams. She came back like a rock star. I was going to take them in a day. I could never have done that. She swings by our house to get some things. And our lawn has been mowed by someone in this church. She walks into our, the house that we left messy because we'd been packing. And we didn't have any baby stuff set up. And there's a crib built. And a baby's room decorated and cleaned and ready and Christmas decorations up. And I've never felt the love of Christ so tangibly. You know, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, the church is the body of Christ. I felt the body of Jesus in you because you loved us. And that is what we are called to do, to know the love of God and to go out and to share that same love. And you do that Keep doing it. If you don't know Jesus, this is the kind of God that is offered to you. A God who loves you and is patient with you and is kind with you. He doesn't say, clean yourself up and then come to me. Who comes to you first. That's who Jesus is. And this is where we, this is where we experience it. You need this. Church is the non-negotiable. This is, this is where what Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. Every single Christian in the New Testament, they learn to love in the context of the church. If, you're going to do, if we're gonna do this thing together, if you're going to do this, this is the place where, where we learn to do it. And listen, I know, sometimes maybe you feel like, gosh, I feel like church is boring or I feel like I don't know everyone at the church. Or, or sometimes I have awkward conversations with people. Or kids, maybe you're like, "There's kids at my school. I don't have. There's not a lot of kids at my school in the youth group. I don't really know how to relate to them." Do you know what that sounds like? It sounds like self. It sounds like self-centeredness. The church isn't about you. It's not about me. It's where we go and we love because He first loved us. He has first loved you. Let's pray. Jesus, King Jesus, we thank you that you are the only righteous and good king. You are the king who became a man and suffered and died for people who did not yet love you. We thank you that you love this first. You are good. Help us to go and love others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.